Welcome back to The Casual Academic, where you'll find in-depth literary discussion without the pretense. Just good books. Spaces survive the passage of time in the same way a person survives his death, in the close alliance between the memory and the imagination that others forge around it. They exist as long as we keep thinking of them, imagining in them, as long as we remember them, remember ourselves there, and above all, as long as we remember what we imagined in them. A relingo, an emptiness, an absence, is a sort of depository for possibilities, a place that can be seized by the imagination and inhabited by our phantom follies. Cities need those vacant lots, those silent gaps where the mind can wander freely. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Casual Academic. My name is Alex. I am broadcasting here from Saragossa, and my partner in crime, Jake, who just read that really interesting quote about empty spaces in one's own surroundings and one's own self, uh, has brought us in quite nicely into our book for today, which is called Faces in the Crowd by Valeria Luisegui. Uh, Before we get into her, Jake, I'm going to throw the bone back to you. How's your Sunday going? Hey man, it's going well. It's a beautiful Sunday here in Madrid, as always, commenting on the weather, but things are good, man. Uh, things are going well. It's almost June, which means schedule's about to get really crazy and hectic, but other than that, all things are pretty well. How are you doing? Same same bow, man. You know, school year's ending, so in the next two weeks, uh, shit's going to go off the rails, <laughs> as, they, <laughs> as they say. You know, tons of uh, end-of-the-year evaluations, grades you know, comments, summer, homework, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, work is work and literature is literature. So one thing I'm really excited about is that how we actually have been able to find time to uh, do the second part of our Mexican author series. And thanks to you, I think, or maybe to a joint joint research that we did, we, we stumbled across Valeria Luisegui, who uh, is a big deal in both English and Spanish-speaking worlds. And is kind of a hot ticket these days. So I'm glad we we found out about her. Also, it's one of those things that we have to pat ourselves on the back because we didn't we're not reading something by somebody who died over 50 years ago. So good on us, right? <laughs> I know, you know, I think um I don't know how many authors uh on this podcast that we've talked about are still alive. The ones that come to mind, I mean even Umberto Eco, he's he he died. So we have Thomas Ligotti who might not even exist. <laughs> and we <laughs> we have Valeria Luisegui, Margaret Atwood, and I can't really think of anything else. Anybody else? That's still Oh, Ursula no, Ursula Gwynn died too. Yeah, she? she passed away. Um, but we did do the episode yeah. while she was alive, yeah. That, that that is true. So, you know, we're slowly uh I guess rearing our head in the present, right? But much much like this book that we've read, uh, the past and the present of this podcast are slowly uh, intermixing. Anyway, man, I'm really excited to talk about this book. And there's a lot of, you know, and Valeria Luisegui is a writer who seems to be touching a lot of different elements of modern day life. And one might even say maybe a millennial approach towards it, but we won't, we won't get there yet. Um, you know, she's written about this obscure poet, Gilberto Owen, who is part of this book, Faces in the Crowd. She's written about um, cities and how one interacts with one city. She, she's written about 
the detaining of migrants on the U.S.-Mexican border and um, the experience of children in that process. So she has her finger on the pulse of um, migration culture, migration experience, and uh, living in the United States uh, as an outsider. So I think it's a very important voice, and I'm glad we're going to be talking about her today. Yeah, and also a lot of the themes that she that she works with are themes that we've talked about in other novels and things that we've read. And, you know, she the names that she talks about in the story, like not Gilberto Owen, obviously, but people like Ezra Pound and Emily Dickinson are people that we've spoken about, at least tangentially, in other episodes. It's kind of interesting to see a fresh take on interacting with these old authors, you know? So I think it's one of those things that it's, um, it's right up our alley, and I'm interested to get to talk about it today. Hey, have you ever seen a movie? I think it's by Jim Jaramusch, or I'm not sure how to say his last name. It's called Patterson. I have not. Have you heard of it? Okay. Um, it's with Adam Driver, and it's about this poet uh, in Patterson, and it's kind of this homage to William Carlos Williams and oh. his, I think he's a big poem called Patterson. And that's a name that's dropped a lot in this book, um, Faces mm-hmm. in the Crowd. And I, I hadn't really read him before, but I, you know, I've, I've seen his name pop up now a bunch, actually, in various artistic mediums. So it's kind of cool that the authors we've been reading recently, including Sylvia Plath, have kind of been pushing us towards poetry more and more. And Maybe in the future we can get somebody on here who knows what they're talking about with poetry, so we can yeah. do an episode on poetry. But for now, I think you and I are a bit uh, too hesitant to, to dive into poetry yet. But luckily, Valeria Luisei has done it for us. Yeah, thankfully. And that spares us from humiliating ourselves by talking about poetry <laughs> that we have no idea what it's about. Yeah, even more so than how we normally humiliate ourselves. But Also true. Um, <laughs> All right, Jake. So before we get to the book, let's get to the writer. So can you give us some just general background information on Valeria Luisegui and uh, who she is? Yeah. So she has a very interesting life and she's lived in a lot of places. So she was born in Mexico City, but then she moved to Madison, I believe, in Wisconsin because her father was doing a doctorate or a PhD or, you know, something like that. And the father, I believe, was also a diplomat. And so she moved around to places like Costa Rica, South Korea, and South Africa. And I believe in a lot of places it says that she grew up in South Africa, but I couldn't find the exact dates for that, you know, like how much of her life was spent there or not. But then she moved back to Mexico City when she was in her teens, and she felt like an outsider there, although she's Mexican. And then she went to Columbia University to study dance, I believe. And it was at that point in her life... uh, that she switched to writing and she wound up getting a PhD in comparative literature there. And that's where she started writing. And basically since she started writing, she's won numerous awards um, and been nominated for them, you know, like five under 35 by the national book foundation. She's been published in the New York times, Grantham McSweeney's the New Yorker. Um, You know, she's been a finalist for book critics awards and had, um, you know, best translation awards for her novels. Although that's not her award. So she's kind of, um, I don't want to. I don't want to be hyperbolous here, but uh, you know, I don't want to like skyrocket it up or something like that. But she's definitely been um, recognized in the literary world for a while, even though she's relatively young. And so I think that the myriad pasts that she's had and her and her ability to live in different cultures is something that I think you can see in her work and how she focuses on the daily lives of people. And so I think that it's kind of like this, you know, many different snapshots of a life. 
the many different snapshots in the novel that we're going to talk about. And I think there's definitely some reflection in that. Yeah, man, I think so. And, you know, I, I think part of her trajectory, you know, in, in, in popularity these days are, of course, especially in the United States, the topics that she deals with have been in the forefront of politics and I think national debate. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, and she gives, of course, this different perspective on it and uh, one that needs to be heard and read and listened to. And uh, I think that that, uh, that helps, especially with the Lost Children archive um, and even one could say with Faces in the Crowd. So I'd heard her name before, but um, having done some research about her, it's, I, think, I think it's clear uh, the importance of her role you know, these days. And even though she does live in New York and she has lived around uh, various parts of the world, as she was born in, in Mexico City and writes in Spanish, you know, we, we have included her in our Mexican author series. Yeah, and one other thing I just mentioned is that she's very current, like we said, and the her book "Tell Me How It Ends: An Essay in Forty Questions" was remarked as one of the first must-read books of the Trump era, and so um, you can tell that she's interacting, especially with the migrant stories, like you mentioned, um, is very much a, a topic on the on the conscious mind in the United States. And then, like you said, in terms yeah. of our Mexican Authors Month, you know, we did Carlos Fuentes, the classic modernist, the person who's trying to tell the history of Mexico and the life of one one man. And now we're, in, we're jumping ahead in time to something very current, which is a migrant story. And then also people trying to rediscover the past through authors, through poets, and something more current, much more uh, surreal, nonlinear, that type of thing. So I think that she makes a good contrast to Fuentes just in terms of doing something that's completely different. And also a fresh face. Yeah, I think so, man. And let's actually stick on that for a second, that, that comparison between Carlos Fuentes and uh, Luis Segui. Uh, like you said, right, Fuentes took his character Artemio Cruz and, and tried to encapsulate the history of 20th century Mexico in his life, right? Focusing on, um, I guess, the cyclical patterns of violence and, and oppression, right, that the country went through. And kind of like W.G. Sebald, Luis Segui mm-hmm. uh, is, is trying, has been kind of just trying to find the ghosts of the past in, in, in our present lives and has a penchant for the obscure, you know, and the marginalized. And, you know, that kind of fits into her broader, we could say, philosophy or thought process with the writing and, and, uh, and her subject matter. But, you know, it's, it's two very different takes on history and, and the past. One is a critique and the other is... Um, it's definitely not a critique. It's more, I think, maybe of a blending of subjectivity and and uh, sort of a fruitless search for identity, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, two very, very different things. Yeah, and I think this is one of those things when we were talking about the episode before we started recording, but I was trying to think of her, and you know I love to do this. I always try to think of the authors that we read in terms of the author we're currently reading. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. uh, even if they have nothing to do with each other, I think it's fun, you know, just to see the trajectory of all the things we've talked about. And mm-hmm. in terms of authors that we've read for her, you know, it's very unique. And I, I was trying to think, you know, like some of the vignettes and the kind of bizarreness of some of the images remind me a little bit of Bioy Cáceres, but not really like, I don't, I think that's stretching to be totally honest that he, you know, he was a little more uh, sardonic, you know, but um, I mm-hmm. think for me, in terms of like rescuing something from the past, talking about things from a different perspective and kind of the journey through a space, it reminded me the most of Sabal, but not even like yeah. a lot. So, and then also 
weirdly, she talks about a lot of people that Hemingway knew uh, in, in the books. And it doesn't like the first page of the book say something about a movable feast. Oh, right. But hey, you uh, know what? here, let me. Do you have that? that? Okay. Um, yeah, it does. She says, uh, I would have liked to start the way Hemingway's A Movable Feast ends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember how it ends. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> me neither. It depends on the version. Anyway, but I thought that was interesting. But then what you were telling me is she reminded you of Paul Auster. And can you share with the listeners what you discovered about that? Because I thought that was a little wild, to be honest. Yeah, it is kind of wild. And in the interviews that we read and that sort of thing, she hasn't mentioned Paul Auster, and he has the, the New York trilogy, right? Which is made up of City of Glass, Ghosts, and The Locked Room. And I had read City of Glass, and this book, for some reason, kind of struck a chord with me. And I thought, oh, this kind of, I don't know why I'm thinking of Paul Auster here. But then um, I was reading about the second book in the trilogy, Ghosts. And let me go ahead and read just like the one sentence summary of the book, which Ghosts is about a private eye called Blue trained by Brown, who is investigating a man named Black on Orange Street for a client named White. Uh, Blue writes written reports to White, who in turn pays him for his work. Blue becomes frustrated and loses himself as he becomes immersed in the life of Black. So in this story, uh, the narrator kind of jumps between timelines here, but then she focuses a lot on her past in New York and how she becomes obsessed with this obscure Mexican poet named Gilberto, or I guess Gilberto, um, Owen. And the life of Owen, the life of the narrators, begin to blend together. And uh, the publisher that the narrator works for, his name is also White. And she has to write reports to him about her research on Owen. And, you know, both of these books take place in New York. And there is sort of a, this is not a detective novel at all, but Faces in the Crowd, there is that sense of, um, you know, finding the trail of this guy who didn't leave much of a trail, no, and trying to fill in the blanks, and in doing that, fills in herself in those blanks that she can't find for Gilberto Owen. So I, I don't know. It, it, it just seems like Auster must have, must have been an influence, um, either consciously or unconsciously, or we just found a random connection. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's, that's one of those things that it's just, if that's a coincidence, that's an enormous coincidence. So I wonder, too, and also, like, I read a lot of characters Oh, sorry. I read a lot of uh, articles talking about the characters and faces in the crowd, you know, and how in a lot of places she uses the the race or the ethnic background of characters to substitute. So like white is a white guy. But yeah, on the other hand, you could equally superimpose white, the character being in New York. And also she talks about ghosts all the time and how they don't really die. And like, mm-hmm. I understand that to be the theme of ghosts. So it's just kind of like, hmm, makes you wonder. But anyway, not here to talk about Paul Oster. No, we're not. And if we can get Louise Say on the phone, that'll be the first question we ask. She's not <laughs> returning our calls. <laughs> okay, so uh, we have a basic outline, you know, in casual academic keep turning left time mm-hmm. and, and space. But we're going to follow the outline today. And Jake, uh, this is kind of a curveball, but... I wanted to go ahead and read the poem that the title of this book uh, is taken from. So this book was originally published in Spanish, of course, and the title was Los Ingravitos. But the name in English is called Faces in the Crowd, which is taken from a poem by Ezra Pound, which everyone says is a very famous imagist poem. Jake, unless you're a, you know something about that, I don't. Um, I don't. It's a big deal. 
And the genesis of that, of that poem is talked about in the book, and there's various versions of it, but I just want to read the poem. It's only 14 words before we get started. It's called In a Station of the Metro. The apparition of these faces in the crowd pedals on a wet black bow. And that's it. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the whole okay. Poem. Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, faces in the crowd is taken from there, and Ezra Pound is a character in this book, or, or a ghost. So... Let's go ahead and start with the, the structure of this novel that will help inform our conversation about Ezra Pound, about ghosts, about empty spaces. But the structure, I think, is the first thing that we should break down. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Jake? And do you think you're going to break that down in a one-minute summary? You're such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. We're just... Uh, no. No? No. Um, <laughs> I got to do plot summary in one minute, which I already kind of did. But um, structurally speaking, I don't know if that's, that's my place. Uh, but it is my <laughs> turn for the one minute summary, isn't it? Yeah. And honestly, you can adjudicate your one minute however you'd like to. Oh, well, um, that's too much freedom. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, okay. Let's go oh, ahead and man. do the one, minute, the one minute summary here. Are you going to time me? I am. Yeah, it's all ready. When you start in your one okay. minute, begins now. Now, okay, good. So this is a book that has three different timelines. There's a narrator uh, who's currently writing this book in Mexico City, and then she's reflecting about her younger self in New York when she worked for this translating small publishing house. And then there's the life of Gilberto Owens, who is this obscure Mexican poet that she's researching, both in her own past and in her own present. And, the, you know, the book is written in these little vignettes that can be either three sentences or two pages, and each vignette separated by these different timelines, but they eventually merge together as um, Owens takes over the story and the narrator's present life just kind of disappears into the, the other two storylines. And I think I'm done. With Man, with, with 10 seconds to spare. I think that was fantastic. Okay, 10 seconds. I would add nothing to that, actually. Oh, Man, well, Great job. The main thing is now we have to decide from what angle are we going to attack the story because there's a lot of different things going on here, um, and I don't think there's necessarily one place to begin. So is there any theme you'd like to start with? Sure. Um, so the narrator who's writing the book uh, in Mexico City, and she has two kids and a husband whose names are baby, boy, and husband. <laughs> there's no yeah. actual names there. She keeps talking about how she's planning the novel, right? Kind of her, her um, idea behind the novel. And she keeps saying how it's a horizontal novel told vertically. And mm -hmm. she plays on that and then says it's a vertical novel told horizontally or it's a horizontal vertigo. You know? she, she plays mm -hmm. on those words a lot, right? So a lot of questions about this book is what does that mean? No, um, a horizontal yeah. novel told vertically. It's, it sounds great, but what, what exactly is, is she trying to do there? And I have my ideas. I know Jake does too, and I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to you. Okay. You start us <laughs> off. Yeah. All right. So I think to um, start off, I think this was actually, this quote reminded me of the Bjorn Cáceres reference that I was saying earlier, just because it's kind of in itself a little, not like a paradox almost, but it's, it's contradictory in a certain way. Um, I believe wow. I read that she said that, when she writes the novel on like the literal word document, it's vertical, but as you read it, it goes horizontal. And so she sometimes like she prints the pages and puts them out to like in order to feel good and like to look over everything so that it looks like it's read as opposed to being like a document, which I thought 
just practically is really interesting. Yeah. So I thought that was great. But I think when it gets into the novel and how it happens, maybe a little bit it has to do with the time as well. Because as you build a novel, uh, the history, we could say, you know, it starts with the life of Gilbert Owen, you know, which is the furthest away. If you think about the bottom level and then it builds up with the different characters and it makes the novel. Um, But on the other hand, it's also like a timeline of history, which could be, you know, which starts on the left side and goes to the right side. And also as well, I was thinking like the geometry of the city, like in New York, how Uh things happen, you know, above ground and they go to different places and they're in different buildings. But then also the subway part where she sees the faces and the stoppage of time and like the subterranean geography. And so I think that in terms of her mapping the novel, it's both um, and it's not just one. And, you know, how some novels are just from point A to point B or they build up to something. Hers, there's no ending. There's no real like uh, denouement, right, is the term. Like there's not that. And so I think she's putting her novel out in a way that is just kind of uh, traverses all these different types of places that uh, you, you would see in a normal novel. I'm not sure if that made sense. No, Ben, I think it does. And actually, from the quote that you read at the beginning of this episode, which is not from the book, it's from an essay of hers um, called uh, Relingos, um, which is from her book Sidewalks. At the very end of this article that we'll be posting, of course, in our uh, further reading section, this is what she writes about writing. She says, writing, an inverse process of restoration. A restorer fills the holes in a surface on which a more or less finished image already exists. A writer starts from the fissures and the holes. In this sense, an architect and a writer are alike, writing, filling in relingos. No, writing isn't filling in gaps, nor is it constructing a house, a building, just to fill up an empty space. It says, a writer is a person who rubs out, cutting, lopping, finding a form that was already there. Prose is for those of the builder's spirit. Writing, drilling walls, breaking windows, blowing up buildings, deep excavations to find, to find what? To find nothing. A writer is a person who distributes silences and empty spaces. So she talks a lot in interviews about excavations and drilling holes. And and that, you know, of course, that motion is vertical, not horizontal. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in this case, when you want to think about Gilberto Owens, whenever you research somebody, you are kind of digging, right? Everyone always talks about digging into the past. And I think she's taking that quite, quite literally in a sense and sort of digs from Owens and her own apartment digs down to the subway. And that's where all of these uh, like Twilight Zone things happen. In fact, in the book, she says that New York needs to be seen from below, I think is what she says. She keeps talking about looking up um, at New York, whether it's looking up at the skyscrapers or just kind of uh, looking up from from the subway and looking at the city. No, man, but I know what you mean, because I think that part of the genius of the novel is she takes, like, when you talk about architecture at the beginning, I think the choice that in the book she's a writer and the husband is an architect and they're both, they're both making places that didn't exist before. You know, she says, she said in one of her interviews that she, it's difficult for her to think in three dimensions like an architect would because they're making a physical building, but it's in a place like in a relingo that wasn't there before. And so people are just making stuff up that's then going to go there and then, in certain places, right? Like it's an architecture of something that can't be. So like, like in the Relingos essay, she talked about this, this guy, this Parisian architect who's going to build something. I don't know if it's near the Eiffel tower or not, but like the tower of the sun that's full of mirrors that was never going to happen. Um, and in a way, I think she's, she's saying that writing is kind of like that. Like she's building this space that is never going to happen. 
And so like the whole bringing that back to the subway, like the if you're going to build this city, but then the perspective of the city vanishes when you're in the subway. And so I think that's where a lot of her surreal interactions happen because it's not like the thing that's above it. It's totally different. And so I think that all those different things come together and it makes for this interesting idiosyncratic space that we read in the novel. The other thing she says, right, is like as a reader, that like is an inverted experience. Like when you read, you're creating that space in your head, right? And Mm -hmm. you kind of fill that up. And so I think that she's playing with these different jobs and professions and also playing with the writer and then playing with the reader in terms of, you know, it's all just sort of this mental exercise um, in an academic and also in a way of enjoyment. So I think that that's kind of like one of the parts of the novel that's hard to get your your hands on, you know, because it's it's a thought experiment almost in the form of a novel. It is. It is. Like you said, it works on many different levels, right? I mean, as a reader, you are you're reading from left to right, but then you're also reading down and then you're also passing pages from left to right. I guess there's that yep. physical action, right, of doing both vertical and horizontal work. Then the subway itself, where uh, the narrator sees Owen through like the subway windows. Owen actually sees someone who looks just like her, you know, in the two different yep. timelines. And, you know, Ezra Pound's poem about seeing uh, his friend who had just died in the metro, and that made him write that poem. But uh, I wanted to say about the subway itself, right, which is also going horizontal, but of course exists underground. Playing with that idea with ghosts and the dead and the past and the present, I mean, it, it is this conflation of space and time, and, and this sort of play about past and present is also, in this sense, horizontal and vertical. And what are some examples, do you think, in this novel where uh, this idea of a horizontal novel told vertically actually come to the surface, <laughs> in, in a sense? I think it's when the characters see each other across the timelines. So, or even better, I think when she finds, so she, she figures out where Gilbert Owen lived and she goes to the house and he wrote in one of his like diaries or letters or notes that he had an orange tree, like a tiny one that was growing. And then she finds like a dead orange tree in the, in the stairwell. And so she thinks that on the one hand, she's like, this can't be it. But on the other hand, she's like, but what if it is? And so she takes it and brings it home with her, and then she accesses him through this thing that probably wasn't his. And that's also one of the like the impetus of when she wants to translate his poems. You know, she brings up the idea that maybe he and Ezra Pound saw each other because um, they were in New York at the same time, potentially. And the you know her boss is like that probably didn't happen, and she's like, yeah, but it couldn't. You can't prove that it didn't happen. And I think that that's a fun interplay between like a thing you might say in a funny conversation with some friends, but also like, you know, there's a lot of things we can't say didn't happen, you know? And so I think as a writer to play with that is good. And also the other time, you know, she steals a chair from her work and then the poet sees a woman in a red dress in the subway with a chair. And I took that to mean that maybe he sees her across the timeline through the subway, you know, which is, uh, oh, yeah, that's which, right. Yeah. Which I think is kind of her playing with it. And I think that could be, the horizontal and the vertical meeting in this weird place in the book. But then when you think about her ideas about writers filling in space or um, or just excavating as well, I mean, in this sense, the two different timelines invade each other's space. If the narrator in Mexico City all of a sudden appears to Gilberto Owen 60 years before, I mean, that, that that's her going into his space and time, and then he appears into hers, right? So there, there's also this overlapping if you want to see like when the horizontal and the vertical meet in a sense, right? It seems like those moments are perhaps when her her philosophy kind of comes through. 
And like mm-hmm. characters in the different timelines tend to uh, reflect each other. In in the last sentence of the novel, I mean, the husband and Gilberto Owens are conflated into one person. And sort of like the fourth wall is demolished. But you know, like in the first part of the novel, she has the three cats that she has around her. <laughs> you remember that? So like, I wonder if the three cats are her husband her baby boy and the baby, which is the baby girl. And like, it's this weird sort of surrealist, uh, like an allegory almost or something. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, because it's, I thought it was Owens who had the three cats. And then eventually the three cats begin to act the same Uh, way as as the narrator and the, the boy and the baby. At one point, it's suggested that the three cats are the narrator, the boy and the baby after the earthquake in her house. They lose their tails. They're hiding under the table. And then Owens talks about how his three cats are under the table. There's not much of a conclusion, like we said, or any sort of neat uh, bow tying at the end there, right? But the conflation, I think, is speaking to something greater. And I think that's what, what we should kind of move towards. Otherwise, we're just going to talk in circles about, about this for, for 30 minutes. <laughs> um, you know, like, what is this conflation of the past and the present and of people and places and of um, the vertical and the horizontal, when those things conflate, what is that doing? And there's an interview that on, I think it's on Electric Literature, which, which we'll also uh, post for you guys. It's, it's a pretty good one, where that, that question is kind of asked, right? It's like, what is this accomplishing? And there's no future in this novel. It's just the past and the present that eventually merge to, to make something, but not necessarily the future, right? And these people aren't really inhabiting their present lives at all. There's that time where Owens feels like he's disappearing, he's losing weight, uh, he doesn't appear in photographs. You know, the narrator is sleeping at other people's houses. She pretends to be Owens when, when she writes these poems, right? Or she translates the poems pretending to be a different poet. So, like, no one's really being themselves. And there is no future because people are just disappearing, right? Like their, mm-hmm. their own identities are merging into each other. So there's not really any sense of these individual people having a future. Yeah, man. I think that's one of the things that there's definitely a few creepy undertones here. Um, and, you know, she talks a lot about ghosts and about how um, it's not a ghost story, but they're like the, the ghosts I think we're meant to, like the people in the past that she sees or the, uh, these other lives. But the thing to me that's really strange is about how because they have no future, and I think on the one hand, you know, the obvious on the nose reading would be like if you have if you spend too much time in the past and digging through other things, then you have no future and you kind of have no life. And we see these characters; they all sort of devolve, looking for each other. And also, I think in terms of her, the the narrator, you know, writing the novel, and she has to like lie in order to get the books published, and kind of so it's like lying about a past that maybe not did not exist in order to get your thing in the future published. And it's kind of, um, on the one hand, it's it's either like a warning for, you know, not to be caught up in the past, but I think that's not the message. I think it's more just kind of like a meditation on art maybe and about how we get caught up in like trying to find these tertiary characters from the past and kind of bring them back and about how by doing that, what are we doing? And I think maybe she's saying that, okay, this is a great thing. I'm fascinated by this Owen guy. This is good, but it also has some real negative effects on her life. Um, and I think that we, you know, it kind mm-hmm. of ends in an earthquake and her family's fractured. And it's, it's not, you know, it's not happy. And it's also just kind of, we're kind of left just floating out there, you know? It is. I mean, 
the the epigraph of this book is beware if you play at ghosts you become one and just a a quick hearkening back to Pototsky, that's a quote from the Kabbalah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is which is pretty nice. Anyway, so there mm-hmm. there is this dangerous aspect of when you deal with these things, um, whether it's marginalized people, unsung heroes, you feel the imprint of the past onto the present. What what's very easy to do is just to fall down into it, right? To fall down into the past and to allow yeah. these people to consume your lives and. Yeah, I don't really see her as a writer who's like, be careful about dealing with the past. But I think she maybe is just trying to reflect something that happens to every single individual to a certain extent. I agree, man. I think it's, like I said, I think it's, it's like a meditation on art and writing and about how it, it's like, like kind of like the novel, you know? You have your idea about something you want to write about in the past. You inhabit the past to kind of get into these other people's skin. And then all of a sudden, it's easier to write as Owen than yourself. And then it becomes like this weird, twisted project that then gets put out on the page. And if Mm -hmm. anything, it's just kind of like that nonlinear, multifaceted, arabesque uh, concept to writing a book is what we see um, in kind of the weird seeing things that probably can't be, but you think they are when you go through the subway, you know, or go through the crowd or you're walking around. You're like, did I just see this guy? Did this thing happen? There's also that note of just kind of like mocking history too about how Owen kind of just laughs at Garcia Lorca when, you know, he's like the consummate poet. Everybody loves him. And then he just, yeah, exactly. He just says he's kind of like an idiot and he goes around and he thinks he's going to make money by shouting out his poems on the subway. And everyone's like, who is this guy? Like, what is going on? thing uh jake you want to talk about blindness and i think we can just sort of bring that into this discussion and the character owens the poet um eventually begins to go blind right but in his blindness he begins to see the different poets hanging out in his house and and then his physical body is getting bigger right so like his presence is getting bigger while he can't really see uh what's going on around him but then something curious happens where he begins to get his sight back and he begins to see things very clearly but at the same time he's disappearing he himself uh, doesn't come up in photographs. Uh, people don't really see him or acknowledge him. And he even mentions how he doesn't like this about being able to see more clearly at the expense of his own individualism or at the expense of his own identity and his own self. And I wonder if Louis Segui is is thinking about the idea where those of us who live in the present and really only think about ourselves and are sort of in our or lost within our own you know desires, wants, and identity we are blind to the rest of the world, right? Because we have our blinders on if we have this tunnel vision of what we think life is and who we are. But as soon as the narrator begins to inhabit Owen and Owen begins to inhabit the narrator, that's when he begins to see more clearly but then loses his own identity. And I think that's a very interesting dynamic there. As your vision gets clearer about the world and about the space around you, it's kind of at the expense of your own place in it, if that makes sense. But you know, for people who don't, Ooh. I guess for ignorance, or for people who have a very narrow, selfish vision of the world, their identity is there. They know who they are, but they're actually quite blind to the realities and those empty spaces around them. Man, that's a great thought. That hadn't occurred to me. I thought it more of just kind of like, because she's kind of rescuing him from history, he can now disappear or something, or maybe vice versa. Um, that was interesting about your place in the world. 
and how like the more concrete your worldview gets, the more blind you are to other stuff. Man, that would go along. I think that would go along with her work well. And especially like mm-hmm. I think about across her other novels and her theme and like her political themes, you know? Yeah, I mean, and think about our own experience or, or of any sort of um, migrant experience, right? I mean, those people who never leave their own presence and their own surroundings, right? They have a very clear idea of who they are as a person, right? And their values, but really have no way of looking beyond their own horizons. But for people who have moved and have lived in other cultures and um, <laughs> in the case of this novel, other, other, other times, um, yeah. you know, they you see a lot more clearly how the world works and what's going on around you. You become a lot more observant, but uh, at the same time, existential questions sort of plague your existence. <laughs> Which, you know, and, <laughs> uh, the idea of who you thought you were, I think, disintegrates with that. I've experienced that. I wonder if you have. And I think it's a common theme for expats and for someone like Louis Segui, who has lived all around the world. I think that's something that she personally has dealt with, or I imagine so. Yeah, and in like in that sense, you know, if your horizons aren't broadening, then they're they're constricting. So I think that could definitely be an interplay with that, and especially in terms of the multiple lives she's probably led, you know, and how she feels like there's a I don't know what the word is, but there's like a left she's a leftover part of her being that she's left in every part of the place that she's lived in, you know, whether it's South Africa mm-hmm. or Wisconsin or Mexico City. And like a little bit of her stays there, you know, kind of like the little bit of the narrator stays in New York or Mexico City or Owen stays in New York um, or when he's like in the ambassador role. So, yeah, man, I could see that. Yeah. You know, in one of the sources we read, uh, she mentions that somebody had given her advice about the more time you spend in other people's rooms, houses, apartments, anywhere that's not your own space is where you really get to know yourself. (laughs) And uh, she she writes about how she never actually did that. She never actually spent a lot of time, you know, in, in other people's bedrooms to do that. But in, in the book, that's what the narrator does. Uh, people are staying at her house all the time. She's staying at their houses. You know, they're like swapping apartments and, you know, sleeping with each other. And there's that sense of just sort of uh, invading everyone else's space in order to try and figure out who you are, right? And to clearly identify yourself and... You know, to get you know, to know yourself in somebody else's bed, right? It's a it's it's an interesting thought. You know, I I for one haven't really tried that either, but you know, something to think about as well. <laughs> well, and that's kind of like the the characters in the novel are finding themselves by being in each other's space. So I think that's that's right on. It's about that time we're getting towards favorite quotes, but instead of favorite quotes today, I think, uh, Alex, you had a really good quote that is an intersection of all the themes we've been talking about today. So um, you want to set it up for us? Yeah, I do. And I think once there's more academic research on this book, this quote's going to appear again and again. It goes like this. The subway used to bring me close to dead things, to the death of things. One day, when I was traveling home from the south of the city on the one line, I saw Owen again. This time it was different. This time it wasn't an external impression caused by something outside me, like that night in the bar in Harlem, nor a fleeting impression like the time before in the subway, but the stabbing certainty that I was in the presence of something at once beautiful and terrible. I was looking out of the window, nothing except the heavy darkness of the tunnels, when another train approached from behind and for a few moments traveled at the same speed as the one I was on. I saw him sitting in the same position as me, his head resting against the carriage window, and then nothing. 
His train speeded up and many other bodies, smudged and ghostly, passed before my eyes. When there was once again darkness outside of the window, I saw my own blurred image on the glass. But it wasn't my face. It was my face superimposed on his, as if his reflection had been stamped onto the glass, and now I was reflected inside that double, trapped on my carriage window. And yeah, so, I mean, that quote does sort of bring to the forefront what, what we've been talking about, right? About the intersection of lives and identities. And the role the subway plays in the novel, in fact, she talks about how it opens up a fourth dimension, right? So <laughs> these characters keep seeing each other um, <laughs> in a certain extent. And it, it, it's, it's from that quote all of a sudden where the first time it appears, a horizontal novel told vertically, a novel which has to be told from the outside in order to be read from within. And then, yeah, so that's like when I, I would say her philosophy, starting the writing this novel, kind of comes in to the forefront, and then it's sort of a, a shift in the narrative and, and the novel itself. So that, for me, I think is a really important quote. Yeah, and I think that is the quote. And you're right. I think when people start talking about it more often, that's going to be the quote that they, that they take from so. it. I think so, yeah. Um, and also, too, now I've, I've been thinking about the subway a lot. Now I'm going to go write it. So I'm going to have some weird thoughts. Yeah, man, I mean... I remember in Madrid, I spent most of my day in the metro when I lived there. And it's so curious to think, like, you know, we have a perception of a city and we just think about the buildings and, and, and the streets and the people, but there's a whole network and life system underneath it that is constantly moving. It's a really cool thing to think about, uh, how, how a city works. Yeah, and when you think about it too hard, it, it kind of, I can see how it becomes kind of like it, your mind bends a little bit. <laughs> yeah, agreed. All right, man, well... uh would you recommend this book to friends and family and loved ones and even strangers? <laughs> Definitely. And also any strangers that I locked eyes with across the metro. <laughs> um, I, would say, I would say go read it. This is great. I loved it. Yeah, you know, it's a quick read. Um, it's a cool mental exercise. Well written. One thing we haven't mentioned, the translation is just wonderful. And yes. the translator is... Christina McSweeney, Exactly, I think. Christina McSweeney, um, who has translated her other works as well. And... I think, of course, there, there's been collaboration between Luis Ayi and Christina because Luis Ayi speaks perfect English or fluent English. So very well done. Uh, this translation is a lot better than I think the one we read for the death of Artemio Cruz um, for Carlos Fuentes. Right? Yes. It's lively. It flows well. It's, it's gorgeous and strange. Um, this book itself is strange, unnerving, funny, and unique. So for those of you who are on the fence, definitely get out and get a copy. For those of you who have read it, we're actually very curious to hear your thoughts. And if you yourself have experienced the superimposition of the past onto your present. You guys know where to find us <laughs> via, via email, social media, um, on Patreon as well. And for our Patreon members, remember, you'll be getting all of these websites and interviews that we've been reading for this episode before this episode is released. Um, so hopefully you'll have read those by now. And for me, that, that's about it. Yeah, man. Good talking to you today. I'm going to go look for Miguel de Unamuno or somebody <laughs> or Thela on the metro. Yeah, I know. Well, good luck. Good luck. I'm going to go ahead and try and find the Tchotchke here in Saragossa. Uh <laughs> <laughs> See if I can find him. Um, all right, guys. Stay tuned for the news of the next books. In the meantime, Jake, great talking to you. And we'll talk soon. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs>